Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. I bet you didn't know that inventing activity by black inventors peaked in 1899, and it has never recovered. Black and Hispanic college graduates patent at half the rate of white college graduates. That's just one of the reasons why you need to know about Invent Together. When our patent system gets more diverse, our nation will get stronger and more successful. Find out how you can help diverse inventors and unleash economic opportunity at inventtogether.org. Heard the call to build your small business? Make it happen with a .NET domain name, the place for dreamers for 30 years and counting. Visit keepdreamingup.net for tips and advice. Whether you're just getting started or looking to grow, that's keepdreamingup.net. Hi, and welcome to our podcast, The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with the bipartisan firm Purple Strategies. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster and co-founder of the firm Echelon Insights. Each week, we're going to reveal the hidden secrets of the public mind, looking at the biggest polling stories driving news, politics, tech, entertainment, and pop culture. This week's top lines. So I refuse to have Donald Trump be the first topic we will discuss. So in, first, we'll turn our look to the uh, Democratic primary. A uh, new poll out of New Hampshire shows Bernie Sanders ahead, but he's still trailing Clinton in Iowa. What is the state of the Democratic race? Um, and then Bernie Sanders had an encounter with Black Lives Matter protests, um, and we had the anniversary of the Ferguson um, protests uh, and, and tragedy. How are Americans feeling about race relations? The first Republican debate is over. We will then finally turn our eyes to the Trump issue, who gained and who lost in the polls. What is the deal with these Frank Luntz focus groups and why has Donald Trump decided to freak out at Frank Luntz? Um, This was also a big week for online polling. NBC rolled out a SurveyMonkey poll on Meet the Press. Um, And Echelon, my firm, we played around with some Google consumer surveys to study primary voters. We'll talk about whether this methodology can work and how it might stack up against more traditional gold standards standard polling. And then finally, we'll talk some work-life balance issues. How do the parties stand up in addressing them? And finally, millennial, aka snake person, dads, uh, we'll talk about whether millennial dads are living up to their own expectations for themselves. And thankfully, we will not be bringing up the dad bods topic. <laughs> I don't know. Dad bods, uh, you know, that was pretty popular. But the, <laughs> the, the, you know, on the Democratic side, it was huge, massive news yesterday. Franklin Pierce and Boston Herald's poll showed Sanders uh, leading with a single digit lead over Clinton, um, 44 to 37. Still, nonetheless, huge news. It's the first poll we've seen that shows Sanders ahead. It's just in New Hampshire where you'd expect him to be strong. Since He's from neighboring Vermont. Um, And it's consistent with a lot of other New Hampshire polls we've talked about that have been in the basic single digit 11 point kind of range now for a while. So it's not a surprise that one now shows him ahead, even though he hasn't been uh, been on the air um, and Clinton has. And I think what's interesting here is not just the fact that he's up. It's also the stuff that's going on beneath the surface where um, he's improving in his favorables. He's improving in the intensity of his favorables. She's softening, which may what's going on nationally. And also, people are more excited about his candidacy. Again, this is just Democratic primary voters in New Hampshire than they are about hers. And if you ask why they're supporting their their chosen candidate, Sanders voters overwhelmingly say it's because they support him on the issues. Clinton voters say are they're more divided. More plurality say it's because she has the best qualifications. 
than the issues, than electability. So it's it's pretty different in terms of why voters are, are behaving the way they do. Um, y- you know, you're also seeing, um, uh, you know, not just more enthusiasm, but in the end, the electability piece is important as a caution for the Sanders team. You still have overwhelmingly people think that Clinton is going to win. You know, that that's still the case overall. But this has definitely been big news. Is it big news on your side? Uh, it's definitely big news on the Republican side, and especially because this has been a particularly rough news week um, around the Clinton email server story. Uh, I think this is just a lot of Republicans are po- popping the popcorn, sitting back and watching. I mean, we have our own issues on our own side, which we'll get to in a moment. But um, I, what is fascinating to me and a sort of trend that I see both in this poll as well as in stuff on the Republican side is this question of best chance of getting elected as being an important or unimportant factor. Um, On the Republican side, I saw somebody tweet out, I think this morning, that at this point in the cycle four years ago, you had a pretty healthy number, like in the in at least the low to mid double, you know, double digits of people who said being able to beat President Obama or being elected was the most important thing, um, was their top factor in who they were going to choose, which presumably helped someone like a Mitt Romney. Whereas this time around, you only have like three to four percent of people who are saying like, yeah, I, I want a candidate because they'll be able to get elected. Right. Um, so th- like this is just not a year where people are like, let me think really strategically about how I'm going to vote. They just want to vote for somebody that makes them feel good and talks about the things they want to talk about and gets them excited. And I think, you know, ultimately that's a much more, it makes a lot more sense and it is a better place for a candidate to be ultimately because you don't want to depend on folks to be processy and think about the process when it comes to their vote. Now, Iowa and New Hampshire voters perhaps are a different exception to that than sort of voters overall who are not always thinking about ways to kind of game the system. Um, but nonetheless, if people want to vote for you, that's that's usually a, a safer place to be than, you know, hoping people will think about what happens if X and then Y and then Z and what, you know, what goes on after that, right? Because there's still right. so many unknowns. You can't really rely. I mean, we, you know, pollsters and pundits don't know how the election's going to shape them, <laughs> obviously, you know, so, so you can't really expect voters to say, well, I want someone who's going to be able to beat whoever I think is going to be the nominee on the other side side because, you know, the, a lot of things are still up in the air. I mean, I saw a video from a reporter today, Raleigh Ball, saying maybe people, Trump is doing well because he's uh, proving pundits to be wrong. I know we're going to talk about Trump in a bit. He's proving pundits to be wrong because all pundits, including myself, thought he would be, you know, he would have blown up by now. But he's just getting stronger. Yep. But the New Hampshire story about Bernie Sanders was not matched then with polling in Iowa. So CNN then released a poll this week um, about the Democratic uh, primary in in that state and actually showed Hillary Clinton with a pretty commanding lead over Bernie Sanders. She only hits 50 percent if you combine the Joe Biden voters and the Bernie Sanders voters, you know. Uh, to the, I don't know to what extent there's a lot of overlap between the Joe Biden appeal and the Bernie Sanders appeal. But if there is some, I mean, that Hillary Clinton is only at 50 percent, maybe that should make her folks nervous, although it's certainly better news than than the New Hampshire poll. And there's a big gender gap um, that, that massive. in the CNN poll. Yeah, that that you have Hillary Clinton does 20 points better among female voters than male Democratic voters. And Bernie Sanders does better, much better among male Democratic voters than female Democratic voters. He's he's tied in Iowa with male 
Democratic voters. And among women, Clinton gets 58 and Sanders 26. I mean, that is just incredibly, incredibly massive. And so I don't know, right? I mean, you know, as we've seen, there's no, there's no Sanders polling, right? There's no, you know, qualitative. I haven't seen any qualitative digging deep on this in Iowa. We don't know. Is it because women want to vote for Clinton? Is it because they respond specifically to her, uh, you know, decades long history on women's issues? Have they not been hearing enough yet about Sanders? You know, what is what's going on? You know, and we don't know the answer to that. But that gender gap is enormous. What are the qualities that in in this Iowa poll that people are saying make them want to support Sanders versus Clinton? Is it? You know, I mean, that's the thing, right? I mean, it's interesting. I mean, a couple things, right? So it's been a tough week with Clint for Clinton with the emails, although that happened after all these, you know, all these polls were in the field and, you know, the the poll softening for Clinton as was happening kind of at a different time when the email issue was happening. So I don't know if they're they're all necessarily related. But if you look at some of the traits beneath the surface that were in the CNN Iowa poll, they're tied, Clinton and Sanders, on understands people like you, um, which, you know, is is a sign of strength for Sanders. Um, he has a pu- plus seven advantage over Clinton on honesty, which, you know, given all the hoopla that's been made about Clinton and honesty, that actually doesn't strike me as that big of a gap. But Clinton has an advantage on uh, best represents the values of Democrats like yourself, not a massive advantage, but a, a single digit advantage. And then if you look at some of the issues, the issues, and they tested just four issues. So it's not sort of the full list. It's the economy, foreign policy, healthcare, and energy policy. And Clinton uh, really, you know, dwarfs Sanders on foreign policy, but they are close to tied on the economy and on energy, um, with Clinton having, a, you know, a sizable lead on health care. So, you know, so it, it's we don't know what's going to be the biggest driver. The, the, this analysis doesn't have what's actually going to drive the vote. We don't know that yet. But it's interesting that there seems to be some narrowing of the gap on some issues, but maybe not as narrow as, you know, folks might think, given all the all the coverage. There's also the regional difference here that can explain, I would suspect, part of why Bernie Sanders does so much better in New Hampshire versus Iowa, that Bernie Sanders is like New Hampshire is right next door to uh, to his home turf, whereas I was I was a little further away. Um, And Bernie Sanders has still, you know, as he's been going out doing rallies, he hasn't necessarily been focused on Iowa. He's been going to cities like (laughs) Seattle and Los Angeles, where. I don't know how many Democratic primary voters there are. Clearly something that he's doing is working. Um, but, you know, he's he's his travel schedule is a little unorthodox, I would think, for somebody running for president, which is pretty interesting. Yeah. No, I mean, he's had bigger crowds than any other presidential candidate. They're not in early primary states. You know, does it matter? I don't know. I mean, it seems yeah. to be, you know, it seems to be, you know, it seems to certainly, I mean, look, having that kind of excitement wherever at this stage is, you know, is, is pretty interesting and certainly is newsworthy. But on the Republican side, speaking yeah, of newsworthy. So speaking of unorthodox, oh my God. So Margie, last time we talked, last time we recorded this show, I was in a hotel room in, in uh, Cleveland, Ohio. I was about to go watch the Republican debate. And all this time I've been saying, once the debate is over, once there, the vo- there is no longer a vacuum for Trump to fill, once these candidates are pressed on their views on a stage, clearly this bubble will pop. 
We will move our eyes away from this entertainment and we will move it back to the serious issues. And boy, did I overestimate America. Yeah. American media, the American media. Did I, I, I overestimate the media. So, um, well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, for whatever it's worth, right? It was, the, wasn't it the single, wasn't the highest primary, the highest uh, ratings in a primary debate ever? Four million people watched. Yeah. But but it wasn't just about Trump. Six million people watched the like warm up debate, the one that Carly that has been Carly Fiorina's breakout from it. So th- the good news, if I'm looking for a silver lining out of all of this, is that Donald Trump got a lot of people to tune in and watch two hours of Republicans talking about what they believe. So and and like that's kind of a hard act <laughs> um, to get people to tune into these things. And so sure. Um, so what was fascinating to me was how the, the difference between being in the hall versus what people on Twitter were saying the reaction was like. So, for instance, there was one moment when Trump said something kind of loony uh, at the beginning. Oh, it was when he did the whole raise his hand to say he couldn't rule out a third party run. Right. And everybody on Twitter was like, oh, my God, the audience just cheered. Well, it was because the audio inside the stadium wasn't working up until that point. And so at the exact moment that he starts going into this answer, like two words into his answer, they turn the audio oh on. Oh my so, God, no way. Like, Yay, the audio's on. And then as soon as everybody figured out what he was saying, they started booing. <laughs> oh my God, that is and so funny. I went funny. back to watch the tape afterwards and you clearly hear all these people cheer at Donald Trump saying he's going to run third party. And it was like, wait a minute. No, 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 no. That's not what happened. But the the whole environment inside the stadium was like we were the audience for Jerry Springer or Rick Lake. <laughs> like every, you know, like, Chris Christie would say would have some zinger for Rand Paul, and it, everyone was like, "Oh snap!" You know, it was like watching a wrestling match or something. Um, every time Donald Trump would say his thing about Rosie O'Donnell, like I don't think that people were laughing like, "Ah ha ha!" Rosie O'Donnell is so dumb and horrible. I think people were just like, "Did that just happen?" Like they were laughing with the sense of like delight over the unexpected. I can't believe I'm witnessing this. It, it was it was pretty fantastic political television, I have to say. I mean, it was, it, and and I'm sure, fo- you know, Roger Ailes and folks on the right were some, pleased or tickled that it beat the final, the ratings of the final Daily Show, you know, <laughs> with all of its schmaltz on the final Daily Show, the debate just crushed it. It was also one of our best episodes, too. So people were clearly, like, getting pretty pumped up about this, right? Because yeah. we had their biggest download day ever since we started the pollsters was on the debate day. So people were clearly amped up and wanted some like pregame, <laughs> pregame <laughs> chit chat. Um, well, I apologize to our listeners. I failed you in predicting that the Trump bubble will pop because it has not particularly popped yet. So there were a number of polls that tried to ask the question, who who won the debate? Now, my assessment of everybody afterwards was that I thought Rubio had done well. I thought, you know, clearly Fiorina, the buzz around her was going to help her. I thought that Cruz and Carson had just turned in mediocre performances. Yeah, I thought, agreed. I, mean, I didn't think they were particularly, they didn't stand out so much. Um, they both gave really strong closing arguments. Cruz gave a closing argument about his father and alcoholism that I thought was really kind of touching. Um, Carson, he made this amazing off the cuff joke about how, well, I guess if everybody here is going to play the, like, you know, who did it first game or who's the only one who's ever done it game. Um, I'm the only one that's ever separated, you know, conjoined twins. (laughs) It was like, oh my God. Um, but they, in these post-debate polls have seen among the biggest bounces while, um, 
you know, other folks that I thought did perfectly fine have, have fallen off. Um, but Cruz, Cruz's and Cruz and Carson's ascent was a big surprise to me. So the agree. Med- and, you know, on the left, we all thought Kasich did well, you know, because he sounded more moderate than some other folks. And we all thought Kasich did well. He doesn't really seem to have a bounce in the poll. So, you no, know, he's still the guy on the bubble. Yeah. Um, if anything, he's the one that's now at the most jeopardy of getting pushed out by the Carly Fiorina rise. Yeah. So you had a number of polls that were done in this sort of immediate aftermath of of the debate. Um, you had in this, and, and this was sort of a big moment for the normalization, <clears throat> excuse me, of online polling. So on Meet the Press on Sunday, Chuck Todd unveiled the results of an NBC post-debate poll of Republican primary voters. And this started getting a lot of buzz because it showed that people thought that Donald Trump has, had won, um, followed by, uh, you know, followed by, I think it was, I think they tested Carly Fiorina. Yeah, you had Carly Fiorina, Donald Trump, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz. And so everyone was all abuzz because this was the first evidence that Donald Trump had not fallen. And not only had Donald Trump not fallen, he had ticked up by one point that Ted Cruz was now in second place, that Ben Carson was now in third place, and everybody else was in um, single digits. You had somebody like a Jeb Bush fall to seven. So this just made huge waves. And then people started noticing that it was an NBC survey monkey poll, that it wasn't the usual NBC Wall Street Journal poll. And so this created all kinds of controversy online. You had some Republican pundits saying, oh, well, this poll is now trash because it's survey monkey. This is so dumb. Why would the NBC do this? They're lowering their journalistic standards. And then there were folks like me who were trying to kind of jump into NBC's defense almost that like, look, yes, it is a survey monkey poll. So it's different than your NBC Wall Street Journal poll. It's not your quote unquote gold standard live interview, whatever, but it's not therefore on its face horrible. And it shouldn't on its face be dismissed because the way SurveyMonkey does their sampling is kind of interesting. I don't actually know if we've talked about it on the show and we should definitely get John Cohen from SurveyMonkey to join us. Yes, absolutely. That'd be great. Um, yeah, the, the way they do their methodology, just just briefly, is, you know, millions of people take SurveyMonkey polls that their friends set up to say, like, which day should we do our fantasy football draft? Or what book should we read in our next book club meeting? Or, um, you know, lots of, like, SurveyMonkey is used by thousands of people to, you know, test what their friends are thinking, to et cetera, et cetera. So the way SurveyMonkey works when they do polls like this political poll for NBC is they tack a political question onto the end, randomly, of these other polls. So, you know, while you're filling out this questionnaire about, like, what you are going to bring to your friend's potluck dinner on this next weekend, at the end, SurveyMonkey might stick two questions where they say, one, are you planning to vote in the Republican primary in your state next spring? And if you say yes, then they say, who are you voting for? So it's not like a total, complete, uh, come-one, come-all opt-in poll the way you might see from, like, when Drudge did their post-debate poll. Anybody can show up. Anybody can vote from as many computers as they want. Right. There is no random sampling of any kind going on. Right. And then people will, you know, campaigns will have all their friends, you know, vote. Right. That's all. That that stuff is garbage and junk. This, though, people were like, well, it's an opt-in online poll. But it's not totally. The the lines have been blurred, I think, between opt-in and, quote-unquote, random sampling. Because in this case... People were sampled. I mean, it was, they weren't sampled from the broad universe of like all people with a telephone. 
but it was still, you know, you couldn't force your way into the poll. You had to be chosen. So this to me was really interesting. And the fact that the Survey Monkey poll has kind of lined up with a lot of other. It makes sense. Polls. Yeah. It's, and so, uh, you know, it's to the extent that these online polls, people kind of look at, they give them some side eye to the extent they're matching up with the gold standard polls. I think it's a really good sign. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it makes complete sense. Other than the cruise piece, which, you know, I agree with you, seems a, a little off to me. Um, it, it, all of it completely tracks. I mean, it makes sense that, that Carly Fiorina does well, that Rubio did well, you know, that Carson even did well, and, and Trump. I find, you know, one thing particularly wacky about these results, I don't doubt that it's true. It's just bizarre that more people say Trump did a worse job, did the worst job in a debate than said he did the best job in the debate, but yet he stayed the same in the poll and worth not ticked up a little bit. And I, you know, I don't know how, I mean, it's just that that's just a, an, an unbelievable outcome of, the, of that debate. Yep. Well, he's, he's a polarizing figure. And I suspect all those people that said he did the worst job in the debate probably were already voting for Jeb, somebody Jeb else. Bush, John yeah. Kasich. Marco Rubio voters. So, <clears throat> excuse me, I came back from Cleveland with like the Cleveland plague. I don't even know if that's a thing, but I feel like I have it. Um, You're patient mm, zero. No, excuse me. Yeah, I'm patient zero. I brought it back to DC. Um, so, the but the so the 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 poll here that shows okay, best job in the debate: Fiorina, Trump, Rubio, Cruz. Um, the ballot test then showed, uh, you know, you had this increase for Ted Cruz bumped up seven. Um, now he is in second place again, Trump, Cruz, Carson dominating the field. And the real storyline there is that you have a lot of folks that have either not been in elected office or have only been around for less than one term dominating this Republican field. Over right. half of people are choosing someone who is not, I mean, you have almost half the electorate choosing someone who has never been in elected office before. Yep, yep. That and even, like and even Cruz and Rubio are a little bit newer to the game than some of these other folks. I mean, it's it's pretty it's pretty fascinating. And, you know, people want a candidate that they connect with. And you're right. I'm sure that I'm sure Trump voters watching the debate didn't say, oh, my God, I had no idea that Trump <laughs> spoke like that. <laughs> now I think he did the worst job in the debate. I'm not voting for him. They it just reinforced whatever it is they like about him. Um, it, you know, the the other thing about Carly Fiorina, which has been much in the news this week for all sorts of reasons. One, she did a great job in the, you know, happy hour debate. Two, she's been really one of the few candidates to really uh, go after Trump and say what you're saying is crazy. You know, the other candidates have been a little bit more timid about that. Um, it's no surprise to me at all that she's doing well. I mean, I think that, you know, I've seen a lot of folks on Twitter and commentators say, you know, Megan Kelly, she was really, she asked tough questions. Carly Fiorina, she did, you know, she was really, you know, quick witted and sharp. I mean, those, you know, those were must be people who are not watching enough television because it was no surprise to me at all that, that both those things were true. I mean, you know, Trump, Trump really, um, uh, you know, with all of his bravado is no match for those two in terms of, you know, their ability to really, you know, take it to him as well. As we talked about last week, what had amused me the most was that Carly Fiorina had so accurately diagnosed her own problem in the polls that she would do these interviews where she would say, like, when people have heard of me, they love me, but people have never heard of me. And so as long as my name ID is, you know, in, in you know, 
very small, as long as my name ID is pretty terrible, of course I'm not higher in the polls. That's why I really believe that I'm going to move up after this debate. And she was totally right. Um, and she and she was really, if you've watched Carly Fiorina give speeches before, or if you watched her on like Morning Joe and stuff like that, she's got this very tight message that like she didn't divert from her. It's not like she came up with some new message that right. got people's attention. Um, it's the same stuff she's been saying for exactly. the last couple of months. It just people had never seen her before. And so now, um, so we, so Echelon, we have been playing out with, playing around with online polls. I think I mentioned in passing at the end of our show last week that we've been experimenting with Google consumer surveys. Um, so Google came to us and said, they basically gave us like a gift card for free Google consumer survey. <laughs> uh, <laughs> use it anywhere. So, <laughs> use it anywhere. So we said, we're going to use it around the debate. So we, we did a survey before the debate. Um, we did a survey. We we launched it like the night the debate. As soon as the debate ended, we launched it and we let it run for a day and a half. Um, and then we did a survey a couple of days later to see how did the race change um, over that that period of time. And our first poll that came out last week before the debate, it showed Trump way ahead, 32 percent, followed by Jeb Bush at 13 and Scott Walker at 11. Jeb Bush and Scott Walker previously had been the, the you know, when we had talked about the top tier candidates, it had been Bush, Walker, Rubio. Uh, Trump came in and kind of upended a little bit of that. But you still had Bush and Walker hovering as as sort of that top tier with everyone else in single digits below them. Our post debate poll really shook things up um, for the rest of the field. You still had Trump in first place at 29 percent. But then you had Carson in second at 10, and then this huge chunk of people at 9%. Rubio jumps back up into this top tier. Fiorina jumps into this top tier at 9%. Jeb Bush stays in this top tier, but at 9%, his support fell four points. And Cruz moved up from six to eight points. The really big losers in our poll, um, Scott Walker, fell from 11 points to six. Um, Chris Christie uh, didn't really move up. Mike Huckabee kind of is staying down, you know, down in this 3%. So the big movers were Carson, Cruz, and Fiorina, and Rubio. And the I people think, that- and didn't Walker drop in the latest Iowa CNN poll, or maybe I'm mistaken? No, he did. So he dropped in that latest Iowa CNN poll. He is now um, only at 9%. Um, he used to be the commanding. I mean, the reason why Walker was always in the top tier of candidates is that he gave that speech in Iowa back early in the cycle and everybody went, wow, Scott Walker's so great. And he catapulted to the top. But so so he's always kind of had this like almost the Tim Pawlenty plan, right? Like you have to win Iowa to keep going on because he never polls quite as well in, say, New Hampshire. Right. Um, now that he is down below Trump and Carson in Iowa, that should be pretty – I would be scared if I was his – I mean, not scared. I maybe don't hit the panic button yet, but – you he know, needs that to was, have some more moments. You know, he hasn't really had – he's had a couple – I mean, they weren't gaffes, but, you know, not such great moments. But he hasn't had any, like uh, – I haven't seen any sort of super strong moments from him. Right. I, I thought, too, that he um, did perfectly fine. I mean, he thought he did okay in the debate. I think he's really got to answer this question about the life of the mother and abortion. Yeah. that was like – when he started answering that question, I was like, wait, are you serious? Hang on. Come on. So – that to me was like a uh, what's going on here moment. Um, so he's going to have to figure out a better answer on that question. Well, I think. remember too, he did an ad 
in when he was trying he had a competitive race for re-election this last time around where he said you know the final choice I may be getting the exact phrase wrong but the final decision rests with the mother something like that uh, he used some language like that so that's a little bit at odds with oh I don't really want to answer the question about whether a mom should live or die you know that's yeah. a little tricky for me you know so um, so he he's he's gonna you know if he's the nominee or even if he has ends up being sort of at the top of the field as things winnow on the Republican side, there, there's going to be a lot of incoming about his, uh, you know, sort of uh, his squeamishness or squirreliness on this issue. Right. Um, so last but not least, before we move away from, from the Republican side, so the other thing that we did in our survey, um, so we, in addition to asking people who they thought won the debate, this was the one on debate night of people who said they were going to vote in the primary and said that they had watched the debate or the coverage of the debate. Um, we did a, a question, you know, who do you think won? And we, of course, showed Trump winning, followed by Marco Rubio at 20 percent, Ben Carson at 11, Ted Cruz at 10. Um, then we did a word cloud. We let people type in, why do you think Trump won? And the biggest word in our word cloud was honest. People think Donald Trump is honest, direct, truth, honesty, straightforward. Um, that to be, I mean, I don't, Donald Trump does not read as honest to me. He reads to me as brash, but that's different than honest. Um, so, you know, to the extent that people are concerned about this trust issue and who's going to shoot straight with me, Donald Trump seems to have captured that. People aren't loving him necessarily because of his, like, issue position. No. <laughs> in a debate, he's endorsed, like, single payer. There is no issue position in this word cloud. No. Um, I don't see a single, I don't see I a see single hair. issue. I see hair. I see, um, I can't, it, that, that to me was my favorite part. Oh my uh, and, polls come up, but it, no issue. That is just fascinating stuff. Yep. And they do not love him for his issues. They love him because he's honest. So, so last but not least, I guess we'll talk a little bit about this question of online polling then. So we Wait, had. Before we go that, oh. so the issue of the Google consumer, consumer surveys, cause somebody tweeted us about their thoughts. So can, do you, can you explain a little bit about what makes a Google consumer survey useful for politics or applicable? Yes, absolutely. So we're going to do a whole big write up on this as part of our like Google giving us this credit. They were like, well, also, can you do like a write up at the end of how it worked for you? So we're going to give this like honest assessment of the good, the bad, the ugly. Um, I think given that our poll wound up aligning with a lot of the other polls that are out there, I feel okay about the results. I don't feel like we didn't get some wackadoodle result that made me go like, wait a minute, this poll is showing. Pataki wins the debate. Pataki wins it all. <laughs> yeah. So, so the results themselves at the end make me feel comfortable. Um, the unweighted data, it's really hard for us to actually get older voters through a Google consumer survey, which right. is hard because that's a lot of Republican primary voters. So when we're doing this, you know, okay, our screener question, who, you know, you, you only take the survey if you um, said that you planned to vote, you know, we were doing it purely based on voter intent. It's not like you can load up a voter file. Um, we did find that only about 15% of people who entered the screener question actually proceeded through it. So 15% of the electorate, that's actually pretty good. And, right. and I think actually it could be a better screen than a lot of these polls that just assume all Republican and Republican leaners are potential Republican primary voters. Right, right. Um, so I think the narrower screen is is pretty cool and has led us to have data that's useful. But you do have to do a lot of waiting because you're missing the senior citizen vote. 
And that's a lot of Republican primary voters are, are older. Um, so if you're comfortable kind of doing a lot of age waiting, you're good. One of the other things that's challenging is you don't get the kind of demographics that you get from a longer survey or from a panel. You get inferred demographics. So we asked a question, what age range are you in and what gender are you? Because we want to go back and match up. How do the inferred demographics match with the reported? But Google makes a guess based on your web browsing history, what gender you are and how old you are. Now, Google thinks that I'm like a 50-year-old man because I read a lot of like, you know, conservative websites and then a lot of sports news. So <laughs> inferred demographics are not great, um, but they're they're like 85% of the time correct. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's that's one of the – it's it's a downside is that you're, you're going to have crosstabs where you have people you're counting as women that might not be women and people you're counting as men that might not be men. But if you're okay with that – um, I think in terms of, you know, we got the data back very quickly, mm -hmm. much more quickly than online panels and much more quickly than um, telephone surveys. And the, the, the other thing that I think creates a bias that is probably helpful in political polling is that the way people take Google consumer surveys is they go to the Des Moines Register webpage or they go to a food blog they like or they go to... Perez Hilton or wherever. And before they can read a story they've clicked on, they have to answer the Google consumer survey. So you're not, you're getting people who are reading news on the internet. I mean, it's not all like CNN. I mean, it's, right. you know, everything from food blogs to Perez Hilton, again, can be caught up in this. But you are getting kind of a more informed, educated, and news hungry demographic. So for politics, that's great. I can see if you're trying to do a study of like, what do people think about video games? Maybe that's great. Maybe it's not. Um, right. But that is sort of a piece of, in the same way that the Survey Monkey ones, yeah, it's random sampling, but it's random sampling of people who are taking Survey Monkey surveys. This is, there is random sampling involved, but it's random sampling of people who are reading content on Google Consumer Surveys, partners, websites. Right. Right. And you don't know what that universe looks like. So coming up with weights or like a margin of error is essentially impossible. Right. And the other thing, you know, that's that's interesting about it. I mean, it, it doesn't sound like it'd be particularly, you know, it sounds like it'd be problematic if you're trying to predict which way a Senate race is going to go or something like that. But for the post-debate uh, you know, post-debate pulse, it is perfect because you simply can't get a good debate viewer or post-debate assessment because, you know, people are going to, you know, they're not going to tell you if they watch the debate or you could recruit people to watch the debate and those people will, you know, then that's maybe different because you're forcing people to watch the debate who wouldn't have otherwise. I mean, there's all, you know, plus there's the cost attached to it and getting it in the field quickly and are they affected by the debate as opposed to the coverage from the last few few days. I mean, there are all kinds of issues with a sort of debate poll. So I think this seems like a perfect, you know, a perfect methodology for the debate, at least as, you know, as good, if not better than all the other options, which are all, you know, all flawed. And you don't have a sort of dependent variable, like a predictive, you're not trying to predict something after, you know, later on where you can say, well, this was off, you know, this was just an assessment of what just happened. Right. Um, and there, but there are things about the way you field a Google consumer survey that I think Google may have to adapt or evolve a little bit on if they want political pollsters to really use it well. So, for instance, we couldn't do any skip logic. You can't say, do you like 
or dislike Donald Trump. And if you say you like him, then follow up with a question about why right. do you like Donald Trump? Mm-hmm. You have to you have to construct your questionnaire without any skip logic so that the questions still make sense and get you what you want. The other downside is character limits. Your question has to be shorter than a tweet. It can only be 120 characters. What? Well, forget it. No political poster. <laughs> right. <laughs> Having seen many page-long questions before. <laughs> it, it forces you to be really disciplined about how you ask questions. And they, they ban you from using certain words or phrases in your question. Like the, the Google algorithm goes through, and when you upload your questionnaire, if it catches any words that it thinks are offensive or controversial, it bounces your poll. So we had a question where we had initially asked, um, are you liberal or conservative on fiscal issues like taxes and spending? And then we asked a question, are you liberal or conservative on social issues like same-sex marriage and abortion? And it pulled our poll because abortion was considered a controversial word. We Mm. could not use the word abortion in a Google consumer survey poll because they didn't want Google, you know, people to associate Google with asking controversial questions. So like that's going to be a problem for political pollsters too. We ask about controversial stuff all the time. If I can't do a poll that you, and we weren't asking people, have you had an abortion? Do you support abortion? We were just saying, are you liberal or conservative on issues like same-sex marriage and abortion? Yeah, it's a bit of a blunt blunt instrument, huh? Right. Um, Even that couldn't get through. So there were certain things. Oh, and last but not least, we kind of had to hack the system to do a ballot test because you can't do a question with more than seven. It's either seven or ten answer options. So obviously for the Republican debate and the Republican primary – that's not going to work. Well, maybe that's another argument for winnowing the field. Like, hey, guys, <laughs> Google consumer surveys won't let us poll with 17 options. So we're just going to have to had, cut this field down. Yeah. What we had to do was then create an image that listed all 17 names and have people type the name into an open-ended text box of who they liked, which is like such a kind of like, you know, duct tape and, you know, yeah. duct tape together solution. Yeah. Um, once the field shrinks, Google consumer surveys, it'll be no problem. But here we like, we had to field like five different or three different versions of the survey with different images. That was how we did our randomization of the ballot order. Like it was, it was a little bit like, you know, shoestring and duct tape holding it together. (laughs) Right, right. Oh, well, that's Um, really interesting though. So your write-up is going to be, is it going to be on Medium like your other one was? Yep. We're going to do a whole write-up on Medium about what we liked, what we didn't like, what we think it's useful for, and what we think Google needs to change to make it more valuable for pollsters. So stay tuned. All right, cool. And then in other news about online polling, so in addition to uh, the survey that Echelon did and SurveyMonkey on Meet the Press, the Washington Post, Monkey Cage, where they do sort of academic deep dives into research, uh, they did a a piece on opt-in polls and demonstrating through some recent articles that opt-in polls, kind of like the ones we've been talking about, where you you have a panel that people say, yes, I want to be part of this panel, can actually, with weighted adjustments, by demographics actually match this quote unquote gold standard of a telephone poll. Um, not that they, that like case is closed because obviously all opt-in panels and polls are different, uh, that you have to do your adjustments after the fact correctly. You have to know something about your audience, uh, et cetera. But that even here um, that, you know, now we're really finding that the difference between these two methodologies really narrowing, which was not true 
you know, several years ago. It's, it seems to be moving at a, at a pretty fast rate. And also, I just find it incredible that, you know, the Washington Post is covering opt-in polling, you know, opt-in panels. I mean, to me, that's just a sign of how 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 accessible information is about polling that now this is something that you can you know read in a major newspaper not in an academic journal this this link so this the story the first time they covered this xbox story was back um last year uh you know there was there's some academics that are trying to figure out prediction markets and are those better than polls and um what so this link then popped back up when as everybody was sort of debating the validity of the survey monkey thing and i think the best point that was made that i saw on twitter was there is every poll nowadays is an opt-in poll that whether we're calling people on the phone or reaching them via survey monkey or whatever inherently we cannot force anyone to take a survey and so at a certain level every poll is an opt-in poll the question is do you have controls in place so people can only take a survey once that you know not everybody has a chance to be in the survey that you are still doing some kind of sampling um but that that ultimately you know the the world has changed no poll is perfect so we may as well start figuring out the good and the bad of these new methods yep in the corporate world they do opt in polls all the time so come on in the water's fine <laughs> it's all it's all fine on the corporate side is you know is uh, sop uh because of the costs um so uh moving on to another issue right it's certainly something that is was part of both the republican debate and what's going on uh, on the democratic side and that's the issue of race relations you have the uh one year anniversary of ferguson you have new protests in ferguson uh happening this week you have um the black lives matter movement um, going to Sanders and O'Malley and Clinton rallies and, uh, and, uh, uh, events. Um, they say they're going to also, um, you know, confront or at least push, as they put it, all of the Republican candidates as well, that that's part of their plan. Um, so get both Gallup and Pew did some polling on race with pretty similar results. And I think a lot of them are pretty discouraging. I mean, you know, usually when we look at, uh, race polling, we see, uh, completely different views, right, between how whites experience race and view race in America and how blacks views view race in America. You see some consistency on this one point, which is that there is real worsening of race relations, that there is some consistency across racial lines. You have folks across the board saying they're less satisfied uh, about the way blacks are treated in society today. That's unique in the views toward blacks. So you don't see this kind of drop to the same degree with any other group, immigrants, Arabs, Asians, Hispanics, all the other groups. The, the, the phrase, the, this, the, those are the words that Gallup used. You see no real difference between now and 2013. You see a big drop uh, among blacks or, or the a treatment of blacks. Um, and you also see, uh, you know, more people saying that uh, black-white relations are becoming uh, are not very good um, or bad. Um, and you know, the uh, you have more folks saying um, that it's a that it's a problem. Um, you see this really across the board. You have you know more folks saying this is a really big problem, race relations. That's something that that Pew found. Um, there are a couple places uh, of optimism. Um, one is. You know, not a whole lot of change in the percentage of blacks who say that they've been um, uh, they've they've had some 
conflicts in dealing with the police. However, that's just asked about in the last 30 days. So that seems like a very tight window. Um, so, but you don't see a lot of change there. And you see, you know, not that, you see more, more uh, blacks than not saying that they experience uh, some kind of difficulty and challenges when dealing with the police. And the other good piece of news is that you have more folks who are optimistic that things will get better. Um, you know, that's a pretty American thing, I guess, right? This optimism that things are going to get better. Will they eventually be worked out? Uh, you see more optimism there, although you see more optimism among whites than with blacks. I mean, with, you know, with blacks, it's sort of bouncing around in the 40s. With whites, you see, you know, it continues to be in the high 50s where people say, and this is in Gallup, that there'll be a solution will, will eventually be worked out. Nonetheless, I think, you know, overall, when I look at these data, I feel that this is pretty, you know, these are these results are overall pretty grim. I mean, they certainly reflect what we've had a, a pretty um, intense period of coverage of race relations over the last year. And I think the polling reflects both the coverage and the reality that inspire the coverage. This is uh, so the the debate around remember the the Confederate flag and how the public opinion changed so quickly on that. I mean, I always suspected that part of that was that you had a lot of white Americans who had thought well, race isn't really a problem, you know, like racism, the way we think about it, you know, people having overt racism is, is pretty much gone. So, you know, everything's fine. And I think what you're seeing in a lot of these polls, like there's that Pew number, um, our country has made changes needed to give blacks equal rights with whites that has fallen from 59 or 49% support down to 32%. Meanwhile, the proportion who say our country needs to continue making changes to give blacks equal rights with whites has gone up to 59%. So you're seeing a lot of people who, yeah, they're saying that black-white race relations are worse now. Um, They may be skeptical um, that that things are going to get better. But um, I think for many, it's not that it's an awakening to an existing problem rather than there's some new race problem. Um, that, that has popped up. It's that a lot of people going, I didn't even know the extent to which this was plaguing our nation. Right, right. And, and that increase is actually, it is fairly consistent across the board. There, you know, for the most part, aside from seniors and black Americans who, you know, were already pretty high and saying that there were need to be major changes. So they didn't have as much, um, room there, uh, for growth, but all other demographic groups saw fairly similar jump moves up in the last couple of years. This is really just in a year, you know, according to Pew. So similar movement among Republicans and among Democrats and among independents. You, and I, I was fascinated by the movement among young Americans, 18 to 29 year olds, because here within the course of a year, they went from being pretty split on, sure, we've, we've made the necessary changes versus we need to continue making changes. Now it's almost a two to one margin where they say we need to continue making changes. So a lot of, a lot of young people who grew up, you know, in classrooms where they were taught, we should all be colorblind. And, you know, we've made so much progress are now seeing, you know, maybe we haven't made as much progress as we thought. Yeah. Yeah. So another issue where maybe there hasn't been as much progress as we thought is work-life balance. Um, This is uh, something that's been in the news um, a a lot more. Um, There's no shortage of studies about this. Somebody, who who is the person who tweeted us to say, do you ever talk about work-life balance? Uh, Well, this this has been a a particularly big issue. There's um, another study that I, I don't have in front of me, so we, we won't talk about it specifically today, but it was all about, it was a study done in Germany. The reason I saw it is because our, our favorite, the poll police person on Twitter, who, <laughs> uh, 
uh, who I, I love to follow, uh, tweeted it out by saying, you know, no, this is a study in Germany. I, I think that I think that's where I saw it. It was either her. Um. Um, but, you know, there was a study in Germany basically tracking people's happiness level and found that after people have a child, their happiness level falls more than after the death of a spouse oh, or yeah. after a that's... period of unemployment. I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, that's true. I don't know about versus death of a spouse, but I do know that the, uh, you know, marital satisfaction drops when you have kids. That's true. That that study is that I've seen those results here for a long time. So that's been true for a long time. I mean, it, you know, they say it's it rebounds when you're out of the like in crazy baby phase. But, you know, I wouldn't know. I just have to read about it on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> so no, no, I'm just joking. So anyway, the we're, so the Washington Post did a study. So there's been a few things in the clips recently. So the Washington Post did a study about this, which they found that Democrats have the advantage on things like workplace you know, treatment for moms and uh, flexibility and that sort of thing. Um, but people are pretty divided overall about whether the government should require employers to be to provide parents with more flexibility. You know, the the language is a little bit, you know, I, I stacked against um, increased flexibility because when it says the federal government should require kind of anything after that is going to, you know, not test as well. But even with that language, you still have about just half, say, require more flexibility, but still pretty divided. But the thing that I found particularly interesting was, have you ever passed up a job opportunity or stopped working or switched to a less challenging job to allow more time to care for your children? And two-thirds of parents said yes. And and that's a pretty high number. I mean, that's, you know, th- that's really what, you know, how... I think we should be looking at some of this stuff and similar to healthcare, similar to things like immigration. It's not simply like, is this a good idea in the abstract, but what's the economic case, the business case or economic case for some of these changes? And if you have parents on their own trying to figure out what to do and end up leaving a job that they were well suited for, you know, is that helpful for the economy or is that something that, you know, be better for the economy if there's some other, you know, better for retention, which, you know, turnover is expensive if, if you have some of these, you know, policies in place or a more uniform policy rather than every business and family kind of striking out on their own. I was actually surprised. For, so I, I, I was surprised in the other direction on the, the question that you mentioned about the federal government should require employers to give employees or parents more flexibility in their schedule. Um, I was actually surprised that it was only 51% um, because, you know, so much of what you hear now is this idea that, like, how could you not be for paid leave or or sick leave and all this stuff? Like, how could you not be for it? And the fact that 42% of people still say, like, well, it should be up to the employer. That I actually would have expected that number to be – I would have expected far more people to say – yeah, require more flexibility. It's ridiculous that it's it's not required. Um, so I, I was surprised the other direction on the uh, on the result of that survey. Yeah, I think it's the federal government should require. That's that's the that's the obstacle there. But uh, you know that's how that's what we're talking about. So right, you know. yeah. <laughs> so if you take it out, you're changing the question a little bit. But um, and then there's some interesting stuff in the New York Times about millennial dads, and you know they had they they looked at millennials and their views toward what they what they wanted for themselves in terms of a family dynamic and what they thought they'd have and how the role of age and whether someone was currently a parent and education, all that stuff, how that all played a role. And 
And the focus was on dads, that dads, you know, had a more egalitarian attitude or, or non-dads, millennial parent, you know, men uh, had a more egalitarian ideal than they ended up having what they thought would happen in practice. While for women, the difference between the ideal and what they thought might happen was actually much smaller. So they were, you know, potentially, you know, a conflict brewing ahead, right? Um, but what one thing I thought was particularly interesting, and I'd love to sort of dig, dig even deeper in this is... Uh, a difference between women, uh, college-educated women versus non-college-educated women. So the study found that two-thirds of college-educated women would prefer a so-called neo-traditional arrangement, right? The man is the primary breadwinner, woman is the primary caregiver, but sharing some tasks um, – and 87% of less educated men agreed with them, but less educated women were more likely to choose self-reliance or becoming the sole breadwinner. So there wasn't a whole lot of difference in men, highly educated versus less educated men in what their ideal family setup was, but less educated women were more likely to vow, to, to say they wanted a self-reliant model where they were in charge than well-educated women. And, uh, you know, that, that's kind of consistent with sort of the end of men. I don't know if you've ever read the end of yeah. men, um, you know, Hannah Rosen's book. I mean, that, you know, it's kind of in that, in that theme, but it's definitely interesting when you think of sort of the, the hand wringing that goes on with those sort of well educated women set while the actual reality that goes on with folks who, you know, maybe don't aren't don't have the time to be reading lean in or the end of men or anything else to you know think about these questions but um are nonetheless in charge of their families and and you know living by a lot of feminist ideals so it's it's pretty interesting yeah this is this is something that i've heard um a handful of of sort of like family and work life scholars on sort of kind of the center right talk about is that you know we focus a lot on on women and women's economic issues and it's absolutely like that that makes perfect sense but one of the really kind of untold stories of this whole recession has been just the decimation of men's kind of economic worth um that right now for a lot of women like it's hard for them to find a male partner if if they if they want to find a male partner who is you know, economically, uh, you know, going to be able to to provide support um, and form a, a lasting bond that that's that that's harder and harder to find nowadays. So for a lot of women, you know, being being on your own or being a, a, a single mom is 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 a path that people are choosing. Yeah. 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 So it, it's it's pretty complicated. It's not as simple as, you know, make sure everybody divides, the, you know, the the grocery shopping. Um, and so that's why you're continuing to see, you know, tons of research on this and, you know, the trickiness when it comes to how this is discussed in the presidential debate since, you know, since you have so many people approaching this from their own personal their own personal lens and situation. So then there's another article. So the, one of the big headlines and the reason why so much of this is in the news is that Netflix recently just came out with this incredibly generous leave policy where you, within a year of your child being born, can take off whatever time you want. Um, so uh, this is, has popped up as, as a, a big thing. Um, the New York Times Upshot did an article then, Can Family Leave Policies Be Too Generous?, um, so two Cornell University economists, they studied 22 countries, um, and they did find that these European countries, quote unquote, like family friendly policies, they did make it more possible for women to work, but that those women are more likely to be in part time jobs. They're not leading into positions of power, this kind of quote unquote mommy track. 
Um, while women in the United States are just as likely to be managers, um, that long leaves and part-time work protections, they might encourage women to scale back at work, stretch their leaves longer than they otherwise would have, um, which may sound lovely, but it winds up meaning um, that that the, the men who are in the workplace who are putting in the more hours are, are moving up faster um, and the women are, are finding themselves at an advantage. Um, it says employers might, quote, engage in statistical discrimination against women as a group, anticipating that women will take advantage of such opportunities. Long absences are expensive, particularly jobs that build on training and promotions. Um, and employers are understandably hesitant to hire people who might leave for a year at a time. It gives them good reason to think twice about hiring someone who might take the leave. No one is saying they dislike women who are capable of having children, but they might dislike additional labor costs. Which, to me, I'm reading this and I'm thinking, this is something that conservatives have said for a while, but we always get called heartless and sexist when we say it. And now it's like the data is kind of showing that, yeah, it's, it would be lovely to give a lot of these leave policies. But to the extent that employers are kind of going like, oh, well... If I've hired someone at $50,000 a year and then they take off for a year, I've got to hire someone to replace them while they're gone to do that work because that work still needs to get done. But then I'm on the hook for this person's $50,000 a year salary. And, you know, that's a that's a lot. So this is I, I, I was fascinated by this because it's kind of it's telling the other like it's the other side of the story of, you know, of course, we want people to be able to have flexibility and spend time with their children and we want people to, uh, you know, be able to build the careers that they want to build and find the balance that works right for them. Um, but there is this kind of, you know, downside that that you know sometimes people don't like to talk about. Right, and you know, and and these are all good questions, and you know, what makes it a, a difficult issue. And I think, you know, you have a lot of companies experimenting with generous. Uh, maternity packages, right? So, like IBM had, you know, was pay- was uh, subsidizing people mailing their breast milk home while they were traveling. So, if you were pumping and you were traveling and you had to send your milk home, IBM would pay for it. Which, you know, it, it is uh, is an example of ha- the lengths to which companies are going in order to, you know, attract and maintain and recruit women. Which is something that there's a business case for. It's not just simply to attract other women to to work there. Um, right. But one way to do that is by also offering paternity leave. And the reason for that is if everybody's taking leave, then everybody's taking leave. Then women are not facing the brunt of the the p- penalty at the office. And they're also, frankly, not benef- not getting the uh, brunt of the penalty at home, you know. So if everybody's taking some leave, then everybody, you know, does something at home and everybody takes some time off at work with all the, you know, shortcomings that may have or challenges that may have. So it's not just it's not about maintaining the men or men clamoring for leave, although that that's probably happening. But it's also about you know yet another way to kind of smooth out the the challenges that women face in the workplace. So I, I think it's pretty interesting, and you know the fact that it's sort of tech and finance firms that are that tend to do be more generous about all these kinds of packages. It's a sign of, of you know the the efforts that they're going through as an industry because they're having a lot of issues to to maintain to keep women on their on their team. And I actually write about the example of Sweden, which incentivizes men to take their paternity leave uh, in the selfie vote, which you can pick up from fine bookstores near you. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Self vote's yeah. been out for how long? A month. A month now. We are we are at a month, and it, the the train is still rolling. I'm still doing all sorts of 
interesting interviews and traveling to fun places. And this has been a, a real ride. I've, I have been enjoying it quite a bit. That is awesome. And the book is awesome. And I've read it and folks should read it and uh, write reviews. You know, you're off the hook of writing reviews for the pollsters. Write a review for, <laughs> for the selfie vote. Instead, if you've already written one for the pollsters, then you're definitely on the hook for writing one for the selfie vote. Um, okay, so what we learned today. So New Hampshire is feeling the burn, but the interesting stuff is beneath the surface. Trump is still strong in the polls despite having the worst debate performance. So go figure. I guess, you know, debate prep experts will be studying that for a long time to come. Across the board, people are still worried about racial tensions, and we still see major gender divides and struggles over work-life balance. But whatever the topic, perhaps online studies are improving as a way to explore them. So where can people find us? You can find us on Twitter at at the pollsters or individually. You can find us at at Margie O'Mara and at K. Soltis Anderson. Um, you can find us at thepolsters.com or on Facebook, where we're always posting updates of fun public opinion research articles that we encounter. Um, and you can subscribe to the pollsters at any podcatcher uh, that that works for you. Great. Thanks. See you next week. Thanks, guys. <laughs>